I, I often wonder sometimes w- whether or not many people in the church have this febrile illness. There's something wrong with them. They haven't really gotten healed themselves and they're spreading illness to the people around them that they're ostensibly trying to serve. To really be effective, to truly be effective at service in the kingdom, we have to be well first. We need real healing. Grace and peace, everyone. Good to be here with you all. Hopefully, hopefully everyone can hear me upstairs okay. So we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be reading four verses today. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our healer. We thank you for this important third story in this progression of healing that Jesus demonstrates very important truths. Father, I know that there is a great need for healing among us. I pray that we would experience that healing power this evening. I pray that we would know Jesus not merely as as teacher and Lord, but as the one who delights to heal his children. We pray these things in the name of the great physician. Amen. So this is the, the third healing after the Sermon on the Mount. To refresh your memory, the first healing that occurred was that of a leper. And then the second healing was that of a servant of a centurion. And now in this third story, we see Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law. In all three of these miracles, we see Jesus healing and ministering to outsiders. You know, if you think about it, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could have begun by healing a priest or going to a member of the Sanhedrin and healing some famous person. That's probably how a lot of us would write the script, but Jesus doesn't do that. He goes instead to outsiders In the first miracle, when he heals the leper, he crosses purity barriers. In the second miracle, when he heals the centurion, who's a Gentile, when he heals the centurion's servant and offers to go with him into his home, he's crossing ethnic barriers. 
And here, by healing Peter's mother-in-law, he's crossing gender barriers. We can say, as my first point, that Jesus is systematically breaking down barriers. He's systematically breaking down walls. And in fact, the order is probably significant as well. So one of the things that I was doing earlier today was I was looking at a just in a study Bible, uh, a rendering of the temple, the temple the, that existed in the first century that Herod restored. It's, of course, built after the return from the Babylonian exile. And you should do that on your own time. I don't know how many of you have a picture of that in your mind. But I want you to, to as best you can, picture the temple. And let's, let's think about what the temple structure looks like. Well, I told you this two messages ago, but somebody who was a leper couldn't even get into the city of Jerusalem. They were prohibited to come near. As you remember, they had to cover their themselves, their, their face with a mask, and they had to cry out unclean, unclean. They had to maintain a lot of distance between people, and uh, they weren't allowed to reside in the city. They had to basically live on the outskirts. So when Jesus heals that leper, he breaks down that first wall, the walls of Jerusalem. The leper is able to, to figuratively have access. Well, now, as we zoom in on the temple, which is in Jerusalem, the outermost court, if you look at a diagram, and I encourage you to do that on your own time, if you look at the outermost court that surrounded the temple, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And there was a, a small wall that, that kept the Gentiles from going further into the inner part of the temple. And so, Jesus, in the next story, in the second story, heals the Gentile and proceeds to break that barrier. Well, the next courtyard that's further in is called the Court of Women. And there was actually a designated part of the temple where women could go uh, that was deeper in, more into the core compared to the Gentiles. But they also had a wall that separated them from going further in. And Jesus here breaks down this wall. There's another area inside of that where the men could go in. There's another area inside of that where just the priests could go in. And finally, the very inner part, the core of the core, was the, was the most holy place of the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could enter into that particular territory. And as we'll see later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to rip the curtain between the, the most holy place through his death and outside of that, providing access to everybody, men, women, priests, non-priests, into the very center of the temple. And so this sequence of walls, if you will, that Jesus proceeds to break down, we see start to happen here in chapter 8 with the leper, the Gentiles, women who did not enjoy much respect in the first century, and then later on it will be for all people. So there is this systematic breaking down of walls that Jesus does in in Matthew. Okay, so in verse 14, it says that Jesus came to Peter's house. And as a reminder, and if you flip up and just look up a few verses in Matthew 8, you'll see where they are. And it's very important to pay attention to the geography here. In verse 5, hopefully you can all see that. It says that Jesus is in Capernaum. So he's in Capernaum. So Peter's house is in Capernaum. And in fact, 
Uh, I've never been, but I've read about this many times. I would love to see it. If you go to Israel, you can actually go to the very house that most people believe was Peter's house. There's pretty good consensus from most scholars and archaeologists that they've identified the very house that Peter used to live in. It's right next to a synagogue there. Not 100% sure, but it's reasonably secure that that's the identification, and it's in Capernaum. So they're in Capernaum there. And it's very easy to move past that, right? And to think, okay, whatever, they're in Peter's house in Capernaum. But I want you to, we're only going to look at, I think, at one other verse here, maybe two in my message here. So keep your finger in Matthew 8 and look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we see the first calling of the early disciples that come to surround Jesus. And Jesus gained some disciples, for example, from John the Baptist. And in John chapter 1, verse 44, there's a very interesting little detail that's given where it says in John 1, 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Everyone see that? Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Okay, so what's going on? It says there in John 1 that Peter is from Bethsaida, but here in Matthew chapter 8, it's saying that Peter's house is in Capernaum. They're both cities that are on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The last piece to put it all together here, and then it'll hopefully become clear. You don't have to turn to this if you want, you can, but in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, it says, and leaving Nazareth, he came, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Okay, so Jesus was raised as a boy in Nazareth, but then he moves to Capernaum. uh, And so that would be north and east from Nazareth. So he moves to Capernaum and he makes that his new home base. Okay, so everyone got it? So Jesus born and raised, well, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's raised in Nazareth, moves to Capernaum, when he starts his ministry. Peter is apparently from Bethsaida, but now we find him in Capernaum as well. So putting it all together, I think it's pretty easy to solve this mystery, that when Peter becomes Jesus's disciple, which happens later on in Matthew 4, Peter moves his, his, his residence along with his family from Bethsaida to Capernaum. So it's an interesting little detail that's easy to miss, it's, the, the distance between the cities isn't very far. It's only about three miles. So it wasn't a move of great distance, which is maybe even more significant because Peter had made the decision that he was going to relocate his residence to be near Jesus's base of operations. Jesus had already taught in Matthew chapter 7, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Peter is actually living that out. He is moving his home for the sake of the kingdom to be as close as possible to Jesus's ministry center. So that's my second point is that Jesus's disciples live closest to ministry centers. Jesus's disciples live closest to ministry centers. So we have some friends in, in Brooklyn. Several of you know them. The father's name is Dwight and he is a school teacher. He does not make that much money uh, being a school teacher. Uh, they have three children, and we are, we are always humbled when we go and visit uh, and just interact with, with him. 
they they love to host. They're often hosting. You'll be sitting there having a meal, and then some homeless person will come in the door, or some child in the neighborhood will come in looking for uh, an opportunity to sit at their dining table. And it's a, as I said, it's a mother and a father and three children, and they live in a one-bedroom apartment. In a one-bedroom apartment. And if you've seen their place, and some of you have, you know that you walk in and you see their setup. And in this one bedroom, they just have it set up where there's levels. The parents live, they have their beds on different levels, almost like a bunk bed. It's not quite a bunk bed, but the parents are on the low level. Then they have one boy and two girls. I forget the order now, but then the children are on the upper levels. And you see that, this humble dwelling. And of course, you're so humbled uh, by it personally. And you talk to them, you know, what's it like living here? You know, why are you doing this? And they gladly and quickly answer, we're here because we want to be within walking distance of the church, which they are, and the school, which they are, and they gladly take upon themselves that cost. One of the choices that many of us are facing and will face, I know this is, I think there's probably at least 10 of us uh, between here and other congregations that are asking questions about where to live. I would really urge us to consider Peter's example here, where he chooses to live as close as possible to where ministry is happening. And in this case, that happens to be Capernaum. Okay, so first point was Jesus systematically breaks down walls. Second point was that Jesus' disciples live closest to ministry centers. As I move into my next point, I want to introduce a an important point that's easy to again to move over. So it says that Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law. He saw Peter's mother-in-law, Penthera. Uh, The the mother-in-law here is evidence. This is blindingly obvious, but it's evidence that Peter was married, right? Peter is married. Now we have completely independent evidence of Peter being married in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, verse 5, you don't have to turn to this, but Paul, when he's writing, he says, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So Paul there says that the other apostles are taking along with them believing wives, the brothers of the Lord, that would be people like James, and Cephas. Cephas is, of course, another name of Peter. Jerome, who writes much later, but still kind of the tail end of the early church. He, he writes that all of the apostles were married except for John. So as a, as a brief aside here, according to Roman Catholic teaching, the very first pope was Peter. They, they teach that Peter was the first pope. He was the, supposedly the first bishop of Rome. And it is a requirement. It is a hard requirement that their popes be single, There's a deep irony in this, which is that the very first supposed Pope, Peter here, is obviously married. And I was, I got interested in this and I just looked up if Catholic apologists have written about this. And uh, one person who investigated this said that as to to date, this was written a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, he said, no Catholic apologists have attempted to address this quite quite striking contradiction. So sadly, the Catholics do not follow either the example of, of uh, Jesus's teaching, the humility of Jesus, or their supposed Pope of Peter. Okay, so now let's go on to the actual account. And I will say that the, 
the way that this account is constructed, people who are very celebrated Greek scholars marvel at the elegance of the account. And so I'll, I'll show you here, and I, I hope this is legible for those who are on video, but I'll show you here the, the structure of this passage. It, it forms a, a very interesting, what is often called a chiasm. And it's a very, very carefully constructed uh, little account of, of this healing. And so what, the way that it works in a chiasm is that it's almost like there's like a mirror image reflection. And so the very middle is Jesus touched her hand. He touched her hand. So that's the middle of the X. Chiasm, think of the letter he or X. Uh, So this is like the middle point here. It opens with Jesus seeing her and it closes with she served him. Now, I want to point out one thing here. I read from the New King James, which said, and she served them. That's actually the textus receptist. But the Byzantine and the majority actually has him, as does the Alexandrian. And so it should be him. Uh, So she served him. So you can see here there's a symmetry there. Then is lying sick, which the mirror image is, and she rose. Then the next part of the reflection is having a fever. The fever left her. So you can see how all three of those are like perfectly symmetric about that, middle, that midpoint of he touched her hand. And so we see at the top of this that Jesus sees Peter's mother-in-law. And at the very end of it, Peter's mother-in-law serves Jesus. So it's a very, very beautiful account. I believe it's 30 words in Greek that is structured in a quite elegant manner. I'm going to point out many things that are obvious, but sometimes the obvious observations are the ones that are the most important and profound. So I want to also point out that the obvious thing that is Peter has his mother-in-law living with him in their home. In in Luke chapter 18, verse 28, completely different account, Jesus, uh, Peter rather says to Jesus, Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. See, we have left all and followed you. Now, we have to be on guard for a false asceticism. A lot of people think that what Peter means by that is he became kind of homeless and single, <laughs> right? I think a lot of people in their mind when they hear that, we left all to follow you, they just, picture, they just picture him roaming around, just this group of bachelors traveling with Jesus, kind of wandering around, right? And there are actually groups that have tried to emulate that. Some of us have interacted with, with even modern groups that have said this. It's, it's completely not true. What, what Peter means by that is that he, he moved his home from Bethsaida to Capernaum. He moved his family. He switched his occupation for the sake of following Jesus. And so there is a sense in which we can understand, hey, I left it all. I left my whole lifestyle, my whole old, old way behind me. It doesn't mean that he became this ascetic monk who, who simply didn't have possessions. We see that consistently. We'll see that with Levi later on. Very similar language is employed there. So he moved uh, his home and his family. And as Paul noted, Peter travels around with his wife. When, when you read the parallel account, this account is, this whole story is repeated in Mark 1. It's given in Luke 4 as well. When you read the parallel accounts, 
we see that the disciples, when Jesus comes into the home, they together beseech Jesus to heal Peter's mother-in-law. They, they, it's almost like a little prayer meeting there. One of the things that we learn here is that the disciples, they kept their family close to the ministry and they traveled together and they sought first the healing of family members. Okay. So my, my third point is that physical and spiritual healing of those at home should precede outside ministry. Physical and spiritual healing of those at home should precede outside ministry. Again, we have this picture of like Jesus traveling around with a group of bachelors sort of wandering around Israel. If you read in Luke 8, we won't do that. But if you read in Luke 8, Luke actually enumerates the people who are traveling with Jesus. And it was a mixed group of men and women. Very clear when you read the list. And uh, undoubtedly, it was this collection of, of um, some single men, some married men, some spouses, some single women. It was, it was, a, it was a mix. And that's probably not what most of us think of when we picture Jesus traveling, right? I think, again, most of us probably have this picture of a bunch of bachelors or single men. I find it very touching that one of these early scenes here of Jesus is, is in the home healing the mother-in-law of what will be the most preeminent of the apostles. Spurgeon says it well. It's a quote that I really appreciate. He says, true religion displays its greatest marvels around the domestic hearth. The hearth is the old term for like fireplace. So it's basically where people would gather and, and uh, cook and warm themselves. True religion displays its greatest marvels around the domestic hearth. And we will see this later on. The, the disciples are not actually formally commissioned until Matthew chapter 10. So it's still going to be a couple chapters before they're commissioned. So they are seeking the healing of family members before they go out and become these officially delegated ministers. This is one of the great principles of ministry. And I'm going to read you a, a, a little story here from Oscar Thompson, who I, I mentioned him in the evangelism class, but he's got a He's got a really great perspective here. So he, he, this individual is no longer alive. He died many years ago, but he used to teach. And he narrates the scene about how he exhorted the people that he taught to first make sure that their homes were in order before going out and evangelizing and trying to serve outside uh, parties. He, and he has this famous diagram. Actually, I might even, should I write it up? Maybe I will write it up on the board here. Um, this is not necessarily the main point, but I think it'll, it'll help you appreciate the, the little vignette that I'll, I'll read. So he, he talks about these concentric circles. And the first one is self. So at the very middle of these concentric circles is self, and then it's family, and then it's relatives, so that would be like grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles, uh, relatives, and then 
the next circle out after relatives, he has coworkers and neighbors. So the people that you live near, the people that you work with. And then outside of this one is his acquaintances. These are people you may not have a And then finally, he calls it person X. These are people you don't know, people that you may meet, people in faraway countries. And he, one of his main themes in his life and in his ministry was people tend to jump ahead and they want to minister to person X. They want to travel to some faraway country. And they actually have neglected these inner circles. And he speaks very, very compellingly about what a huge mistake that is and how for most people, their whole, they have these dreams of going to some foreign country, but they haven't even been effective at ministering to the people close to them. And, and so, as I said, this is probably what he's best well known for. Uh, his name's Oscar Thompson. And I'll just read you a story from, from him illustrating this. So he was teaching this principle and he says, a young man on my left blurted out, Dr. Thompson, I have all kinds of problems with that, with this diagram. I turned and said, what's the matter, Jim? The impact of the moment had overwhelmed him. The assignment had touched an area of bitterness in his life that he did not know how to deal with. He said, you do not understand. You grew up in a Christian home, but my father abandoned my mother and me 26 and a half years ago. I'm 27 years old. I've never seen him. I don't want to see him. I whispered, oh, a class of 60. He didn't realize what had happened to him. All that pent-up anger just rolled out. Gently, I turned to the board. Speaking silently to the Lord, I said, Lord Jesus, love Jim through me. Please meet his need. A passage of scripture came to mind. I wrote on the board, Matthew 6, 14 to 15. My translation was, because of the love of Jesus and his forgiveness in my life, I must be ready to forgive if I am to be forgiven. I said, in other words, you do not give people what they deserve. You give them what they need. I turned back around and the Holy Spirit was doing his work. I said, Jim, I think you are in this class through divine providence. I think God is going to teach me something and you something and this class something. For if I cannot forgive another on the grounds of God's infinite grace, then God is going to have great difficulty forgiving me. Your father does not deserve forgiveness, but neither do you and neither do I. Tears were trickling down Jim's cheeks. The Holy Spirit descended upon that class. Jim said, what should I do? I do not know where my father is. He may not even be alive. I said, it does not matter. Your problem is one of attitude. You take it to God, let him tell you what to do and leave it there. If God helps you find your father, you will know what to do. Jim said, yes. We called the class to prayer. It was a glorious time. Weeks passed. One day, Jim came sashaying into class about two feet off the ground. I thought he worked for Bell Helicopter. He said, Dr. Thompson, I have something to say. I just have to share it. I cannot wait. Well, by that time, I had lost my train of thought anyway. I said, say on. Jim said, last night I received two telephone calls. The first came from my mom saying that one of my godly aunts had gone to be with the Lord. I always thought that she was my mother's sister, but she was not. She was my father's sister who had stayed close to the family. At 11 o'clock, I received a second call, and the voice on the other end said, Jim, son, although I have no right to call you son, I've heard that you are at Southwestern Seminary preparing for the ministry. 
I thought you would like to know that I recently gave my life to Jesus Christ. Can you forgive me for what I've done? Jim said, when I could quit sobbing, we talked. We spent an hour on the phone. My father said, son, may I come to your graduation? In May of that year, we were marching in the processional of the graduation exercise in all of our academic regalia. While someone grabbed me out of line, it was Jim. He took me over to a little man who looked up through his trifocals. In tears, Jim said, Dr. Thompson, this is my father. Dad, this is my professor. Well, what do you say? Oh, we just went into a three-cornered hug. That, dear friend, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Powerful story illustrating this, this principle here of these concentric circles. And I love here that, that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see that Peter, the great apostle, and his, and his fellow apostles, especially in the parallel account, are asking Jesus to heal his mother-in-law. This is demonstrated again and again in the Bible in so many different, different places. Paul will later on say, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. And he means in that context materially, but surely he means spiritually as well. So I'll say it here as I do in evangelism class. If you're thinking about going to some foreign country, being a missionary, and you're not being effective here, how are you going to be effective abroad if you're not being effective at home? And we need to remember that we need to start in the middle and work our way out and not jump ahead. I think this, this certainly applies with respect to evangelism, but it, is, it applies even to the church. One of the things that I, I stress this often, many, most of you know how, how much we stress the importance of like daily family devotions not missing that, really making sure that you're putting in the time in your home there, in the, in the setting of the church, uh, not, you know, being, being, a, being loyal, being faithful at, at uh, prayer meetings and uh, LDGs. Uh, we've, I was sharing earlier, we've been having really powerful LDGs in, in our group. And as my group will attest, I don't miss meetings. I, even when I'm away, I call in, I figure out a way to be there. Uh, it's so important for us to be good and loyal with those that are that we're supposed to be connected to. So here we see this principle model that physical and spiritual healing of those at home should precede outside ministry. Next point. This is my fourth point. Effective service requires prior healing. Effective service requires prior healing. So imagine Peter's mother-in-law trying to serve with a fever. I think a fever is, in a lot of ways, is one of the most powerful pictures and, and just really captures well the, the, the picture of the pre-Christian life or the life that's, not, that's, still, that's still wrestling or not consecrated to God. So the word for fever is, is puratos. It's, the, it's very closely related to the word pure in Greek, which is fire. Uh, and it's appropriate because when you have a fever, you're hot. Uh, so it, you can see why it's a cognate to, to fire. And the, the pre-Christian life or the pre-consecrated life is one where we have all these burning desires that are sort of uh, these cauldrons. We are these cauldrons of desires that we hardly know how to contain. When you have a fever, you're often not hungry. You're not hungry for the right things. You're not hungry for the things of God. 
were parched from a lack of living water. And we often, when you have a fever, it goes up and down. So fevers are notorious that they, you, you can run hot and then you can get cold again. Very, probably a lot of you've had this if you've had different, different illnesses. And those who are under a fever often have kind of a waxing and waning of their health. They can do well for a while and then they feel bad again. They do well for a while and they feel bad again. And it's just this up and down pattern. This is completely the mark of the pre-Christian life. In addition, when you have a fever, you are contagious. And when you're contagious, that means you can spread illness to other people. There's a, a famous story, a very famous story of a woman in the early 1900s. Her name was Mary Mallon. And they were having these huge epidemics in the New York area of, of illnesses that involved diarrhea. And many people were dying as a result. And people were trying to figure out what, uh, what was the cause of this. It was uh, people who got this particular disease died 10% of this time. And it mainly was afflicting people in large cities. There was a, a family, uh, man's name was Charles Warren. He was a, a wealthy New York banker. And he had some affliction in his home and he commissioned a sanitary engineer named George Sober to figure out what the cause of this was. And this, uh, this, this sanitary engineer became almost like a detective to try to figure out why is this illness being spread around. And he initially thought it was coming from clams, but but eventually started to lock down on this, this woman named Mary Mallon, who wor- worked as a cook and who used to work as a cook in Charles Warren's home. So as, um, as he did the research here, he, he believed that she was in fact transmitting a bacteria to people around her and threatening people's lives. He started to stalk her um, in Manhattan. She had moved to Manhattan and he tried to obtain samples of her feces, her urine and her blood. And this I'm reading from a journal article here, but all that that got him was she kept chasing him away. Eventually she, he, uh, he was able to put it all together and traced out her history as a cook. She had cooked for eight families and uh, seven of those families had experienced this disease. 22 of those people presented infection and some of them even died. That year, 3,000 New Yorkers were infected with this disease and they, they believed that this woman, Mary Mallon, was the cause of that. Uh, this, detect, this sanitary engineer slash detective was trying to, to pin her down on this. She was frequently accused of it. And finally, he got the support of the New York Department of Health um, who actually got the police involved to bring in Mary Mallon for testing. She was not cooperative. She eluded them for five hours, but at the end, she gave them samples. They tested her stool, and it was positive for what we now call as Salmonella typhi. Uh, she ended up having to go into quarantine. It was confined. They tested 163 of her stool samples over the years, uh, and 120 of them were positive. Amazingly, uh, eventually she was um, she was treated and released, and 
earned the nickname Typhoid Mary. This, uh, this is a true story of a woman who never w- was basically in this low-grade illness of having typhoid and was spreading this disease to all the people that she was working with. I, I often wonder sometimes w- whether or not many people in the church have this febrile illness. There's something wrong with them. They haven't really gotten healed themselves, and they're spreading illness to the people around them that they're ostensibly trying to serve. To really be effective, to truly be effective at service in the kingdom, we have to be well first. We need real healing. So much of even modern medicine is geared at just treating symptoms. The distinction about Jesus is that he gets at the root cause. He gets at the true root of the root cause that that often people are not able to address. It takes discernment. It takes a lot of discernment to figure out with a person, hey, what is my root cause illness? Not just what are the symptoms, not just what's my fever, but what's the root cause? I, I, I truly believe that for many people in the church that they, they don't even themselves know what the root cause is that, that keeps them in this febrile condition where they're just going up and down, up and down in their state. How is it with you? Do you know the root cause of your fever if you have a fever? I'll give one other illustration of this. Yesterday, we had a really great session in our freedom group. Our freedom group is um, a group that is focused on deliverance from pornography. And the chapter that we read, I was very struck by, second time reading it for for, uh, myself. And the author contends that the root problem of pornography is actually arrogance. And I was going to read it, maybe I won't in the interest of time, uh, this powerful section where basically he, he points out that a lot of people who struggle with pornography, they define their, their, their whole struggle with pornography almost defines their Christian existence. It's such a dominant part of who they are. And they don't recognize that, in fact, if you zoom out, it's part of a larger network of sins. And the root of that is actually arrogance that has all kinds of manifestations. And he specifically debunks the idea that the root cause is is being lonely or a victim or some kind of childhood experience. He's got a, a brilliant section on that. Uh, I, won't, I don't think I'll read it in the interest of time, but I was so struck by that because I thought he put, he put uh, an, an excellent diagnosis on the root cause, which is most people would say that's really not the root, is it, of, of pornography? I believe it is. And how often is it the case that we are not really healed, but we continue to try to, to serve? I would love to discuss or pray with anyone about getting at the root cause if you, if you have identified that you are in a febrile condition. One of the things that we can say with confidence is that Jesus wants to bring healing. Uh, when you read all three of these vignettes, you don't get any kind of sense of Jesus hesitating or Jesus saying, oh, I, I'm not really sure if I want to heal you or not. You get the sense of someone who is delighted, who's overjoyed to heal. Okay, first point was Jesus systematically breaks down walls. Second point, based on Peter's model of going from Bethsaida to Capernaum, Jesus' disciples live closest to ministry centers. Third point was that physical and spiritual healing of those should precede external ministry. And then uh, the next point, my, my fourth point was that effective service requires prior healing. Two more points to go. My fifth point is that Jesus loves to physically heal. 
I think this is an, 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 again, an obvious point that is easy to overlook. Jesus has many different roles in the New Testament. He's a teacher, he's, he's redeemer, he's Lord. But certainly, I think anybody who's read the Gospels would, would say that his function as a healer is awfully prominent throughout the, the synoptics and throughout John. In verse 17, Matthew summarizes Jesus's ministry and uh, at least these first three vignettes, I should say, by, by recalling Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So Isaiah 53 is not only about the cross, it includes Jesus's healing ministry that precedes his, his death on the cross. Jesus loves to physically heal. And I will say that, that people in general love to subconsciously love to deny or minimize aspects of Jesus that don't fit their tradition. For centuries, many, many centuries, the Protestant world thought that the Great Commission was not applicable today. It was not a, a group that generally advocated evangelism and missions and was largely dormant until the 1700s. <clears throat> Now we look at that and we think, how is that possible? How can you read the Bible and like miss that, right? How, how, but the case could be made that depending on the group that you're from, you could read the Bible and miss Jesus as healer. In James, we won't read this, but in James chapter five, it's very clear. James says, hey, if you're sick, call the elders. They're going to come pray and anoint you with oil and the prayer of a righteous man can, can heal you. It's a, it's a very clear call that the experience of, of healing should be matched with prayer and likely healing, not 100% of the time. And I'll read you one other verse here because I think it's important for us to remember this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing, hearing of faith? So Paul is saying there, to the Galatians, that they're having miracles happen in their midst. It's very easy to fall prey to some kind of rationalistic, materialistic spirit that denies God as, as our healer and Jesus our healer today. So much of the early church's experience of Jesus was mediated through healing. They knew Jesus and Jesus' power through healing. And I would challenge us, have we fallen prey to the rationalism and compartmentalizing away that aspect of Jesus and simply looking to him as teacher or Lord? Now, I'm not saying it's 100% of the time. Um, sometimes God chooses to chasten those he loves, as he, as he does with Paul. Uh, but it is often. And I, I myself grew up in charismatic churches, and we there was a strong emphasis on healing. And I can say both biblically and experientially, it, it does happen, but not if you don't seek it. My, my sixth and final point is that domestic ministry is honorable work that promotes self-denial in the next generation. You might think, where does that come from? I'll explain this point. Domestic ministry is honorable work that promotes self-denial in the next generation. Okay, so Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And immediately after she's healed, what does she do? She serves Jesus. So presumably she serves him a meal. It's pretty remarkable. Normally after you're sick, you want to 
spend some time in recuperation. But here, she's just back up on her feet and she is determined to serve. She doesn't embark on some kind of grand preaching campaign. She is content to serve in the home there. While it is not glamorous work, it is the infrastructure of the family and the godly home. And it's, it's very striking. We, we finished a couple months ago or maybe a month ago doing a study of the book of Luke in our family devotions. And especially in Luke, women are often a paradigm of discipleship. They're often lifted up as examples of discipleship. Peter's mother-in-law was a very special woman. She's special because she turned immediately and out of the, the gratitude uh, that, uh, that she, she felt after Jesus healed her, she decided to serve. Of course, one of the other reasons she was a special woman is that she raised a godly, strong woman who would be Peter's wife. Now, I will tell you something you probably don't know about Peter's wife, who's the daughter of this woman that Jesus heals. This woman would go on to to learn from her mother-in-law and do something quite surprising. Um, Before I tell you what it is, um, I will say, uh, make a little observation that I've consistently noted, is that there is something about her service, Peter's mother-in-law's service, that taught her daughter self-denial and the beauty of God's ways. I have consistently noticed this, like an overwhelming uh, overwhelming observation is that the daughters of homemakers especially have a deep humility, much more so than the daughters of people who are uh, the daughters of mothers who are career seekers and out there trying to make a name for themselves. That observation of the self-denial of the woman who engages in in service in the home, promoting self-denial and raising up a godly next generation is evident in in her daughter and Peter's wife. Now you might say, wait, Penny, what are you talking about? We don't have any information about, about Peter's wife, but we do. So as it turns out, we know from, from Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the in the 200s, that Peter and his wife were actually martyred together on the same day. Amazing. So Clement of Alexandria writes this, where he says, quote, on seeing, this is about Peter, on seeing his wife led to death, Peter rejoiced on account of her call and her journey home and called very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? So Peter's mother-in-law, again, we, we know very little about her, but we know that she served Jesus and she produced an amazing daughter who would go to the death with Peter. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that we would internalize the the depth of this passage, that we would see the beauty of Jesus breaking down these walls, uh, the the pattern of of Peter as the head of your your apostles, relocating his home to, to live near this ministry center, that he sought the physical and spiritual healing of those in his home first, that, uh, that we see this principle that effective service requires prior healing. And Jesus, we praise you that you love to heal. I know there's even individuals today uh, in, in 
even from our agape, who I, I know expressed physical pain. I, I pray that, Jesus, you would touch them and that you would show us again that we would experience your power through, through, through healing. We ask that we would remember uh, that uh, the power and the greatness of these, these women who often we don't know their names, but have, uh, have raised up the next generation so faithfully and powerfully teaching self-denial, the power of service and the power of martyrdom. May we do so in our generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 